This is My Seminary Life, episode 13, and I'm your host, Brandon Knight, and today we are going to be looking at some of C.S. Lewis's thoughts on miracles. Well, welcome back, everyone. Here we are. As promised, we are now going to do our talk on miracles. These last few weeks, we've looked at God in the dock. What are we to make of Jesus Christ? We looked about looked at about a dozen or so of Lewis's poems. And then last week, we had a conversation about some of his thoughts on grief. And now we are here. We are going to have the big talk on miracles. I gotta say, this has been a hefty read. It's been possibly my favorite one so far, only because there were so many times when I had to put the book down and just sit there and go, oh my gosh, I have no idea what he just wrote, but it blew my mind. It's been good. I've really enjoyed studying this week, and I hope you are excited for today's episode. Uh, this is based. This is not the entirety of the book Miracles by C.S. Lewis. It is only a portion of it. In my opinion, this seems to be a lesser loved book of Lewis, only because I don't hear people talk about it as much. Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, Surprised by Joy. You know, everyone has either read those or knows about them or has quoted from them. I don't hear so much about miracles, and after having read this section, and hopefully after you listen today, to today's episode, this might get you motivated to go out and get yourself a copy to read it for yourself. Now, if you are new here and you are confused by uh, what is going on here a little bit, allow me to explain. Uh, here on the show, I sit down once a week to reflect over what it has been that I've been studying uh, in my seminary classes that week. However, I don't have any classes to take this summer. And so we have a fake summer semester going on right now. We are in the middle of our study of C.S. Lewis. And then on the second half of this semester, we are going to be, or the, we're going to be looking at some of my older sermons. It's going to be a little bit more story-based, me talking about some of the things, uh, you know, the reasons why I prepared certain sermons and the events leading up to it, and also the sermon itself, kind of the high-level points of it. Uh, so we're in the middle of our fake summer semester. Our irregularly scheduled actual education starts back up at the end of August. Looking forward to what we got going then. Now, one of the downsides to hosting my own show and being a one-man show is the fact that I can't have any witty banter for the first 5 to 20 minutes of the episode, which everybody knows is the best part of every podcast. That first little bit where they're talking about absolutely nothing of significance or barely relates to the subject that they're going to be talking about in the episode. But the upside is when it is just a one-person show, and you have a lot to cover, you can do the short route and just jump right in. And that's what we're going to do today. So, 
Miracles, written in 1942, is a book by Lewis on the subject of miracles. Yeah. What we have here today is a general theology Lewis has on miracles. He opens uh, sharing the story of a woman who told him a story of a time she encountered a ghost. A lot of people's attentions have now perked up. She, she tells him a story about how she has encountered a ghost, but she doesn't believe it herself. Not in a, oh my goodness, I can't believe I came across a ghost, but more in a sense of, I saw a ghost, but I don't believe that it was a ghost. Which is confusing. She did not believe it was a ghost. It was a hallucination in her, in her view. From there, he states that seeing is not believing. Because if our philosophy of life does not include the possibility of the supernatural, then of course, miracles can occur. If we're not going to allow space for the supernatural to intervene, then of course, they're not going to happen. Plain and simple. This is very evident in Western Europe at that time with the rise of materialism. And Lewis states that even if someone was thrown into the lake of fire itself, they would still explain it away as an illusion because at that time, experience proved nothing. Which is a crazy thought to me that experience would prove nothing back in 1940s. Because now I think experience proves everything. You, that's how we have so many podcasts and so many blogs and so many self-help books. Is that people are using their personal experiences and books and the Bible and whatever else. But their personal experiences to shape their reality and to help... <clears throat> Excuse me, and to help other people shape their own reality as well. I mean, even like what I'm doing here, I have spent all weeks reading this material. Well, actually, it's been several weeks now, reading this material, writing the script. I have experienced it for myself, and now I'm telling you about it to help shape your view and your experience on the subject. Back in the 40s, that wasn't so much the case. Even if you were thrown into the lake of fire itself, even if you saw a ghost, you would still explain it away as an illusion or a hallucination. <clears throat> All of that was written in the first paragraph. The story, the seeing is not believing... The example of the lake of fire, materialism, all of that was crammed into the very first paragraph, which I hope continues to underline the fact that this was a hefty read and there was a lot to cover and it was going to be really good. From there, Lewis says that a lot of modern people will excuse the writings of our ancestors as people who were reading into certain events as miracles that really weren't. Because they did not have an understanding of the law of nature. So in other words, a lot of ancient writings that talk about miracles, which would include scripture, we nowadays would, or well, okay, so in the 40s, they would have excused it away as 
these primitive, unlearned people not understanding how nature actually works, the laws of nature, how science plays a factor in our reality. <clears throat> now, he says that may be true of certain miracles, but you can't claim that for everything. Lewis points specifically to Joseph when he found out that Mary was pregnant. We, he knew enough th biology for that. That is a line from the book. He knew enough biology for that. He knew that something happened here, and it's not normal. What did you do? <laughs> Lewis jokingly writes, saying that it is clear that Joseph did have an idea of how biology works since he wanted to put Mary away privately. Because Joseph wanted, he thought Mary committed adultery and he wanted to preserve her life. So he was going to put her away privately because he understood how biology works, how reproduction works. He understood enough biology for that. However, Joseph accepted the Christian explanation another line from Lewis, for why Mary was pregnant. He knew enough of the law of nature to know this was a suspension of them, Lewis writes. The same mentality is applied to the, to the account of when Jesus walked on water. The disciples knew enough about the laws of nature to know that at this moment, that was a suspension of those laws. So our, our ancestors, yes, may have not have known everything about the sciences that we do right now. And even in Lewis's day, compared to 1942 to 2021, like, we have a better understanding still. But there are some things that, okay, cut him a break. Joseph knows how Mary, quote unquote, how Mary got pregnant. The disciples knew, hey something's on the water and that's not normal. Oh, it's a ghost. So even in their response, it's like a suspension of the supernatural, or a suspension of the natural laws. It must be a ghost. Close, but not really. It is the supernatural. It's Jesus. So the, let's, let's cut them a little bit of a break. This transitions into two conditions that Lewis has for something to be a miracle, okay? This is, you know, in a, to an extent, this is Lewis's working definition of what a miracle is. First, you have to believe in the, quote, normal stability of nature. And second, we must believe in a, quote, reality beyond nature. So in other, so in other words, you have to agree that what you see right now is a reality and that there is a stability to that normal reality. Now, of course, there are people who think that we live in like a, like a matrix type of situation. But in general, you have to look, I'm, you know, I, I record this in my office and I open my window so that way I can see the sunlight and the trees and nature and my neighbor's pickup truck. and. But it allows me to kind of see that, okay, this reality outside my window, that is true, that is reality. There is a 
law, there are laws in place here that are keeping things as it should be. But for a miracle to occur, there has to be a moment where this reality, where one of these laws is suspended and something happens that shouldn't. Lewis argues that if we can accept this, then the reports of well-respected missionaries of miraculous events of the numerous or the numerous stories from the Roman Catholic Church begin to make more merit. Although he does make it clear that not every story is still to be believed. Lewis is not arguing that every story that you have ever heard of when a miracle has occurred has happened. That's not the point here. Lewis is trying to defend biblical miracles and, to an extent, some of the additional miracles that have occurred in in the real world outside of the walls of Scripture, if that makes sense. In other words, there is a reason why the story of St. Patrick driving all the snakes out of Ireland is actually considered more of a legend than an actual historical event. Lewis then moves the conversation specifically towards the miracles of Christ and the issue that modern people of 1942 have with them. He says that it is not so much the disbelief of the supernatural, but first it is a, quote, aesthetic dislike of miracles. And I absolutely love that. An aesthetic dislike of miracles. People may not say that God can, people, excuse me, people may say that God can do a miracle. God can very well suspend the laws of nature to do something. But they doubt he will because he is the one who set up the laws of nature. So why would he go around his own laws? unless it is to impress some savages somewhere. Which, I think, is an ironic viewpoint because of our verse of the week. So our verse of the week is 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. Paul is writing here that the Jews, the people of God, required signs to confirm the Messiahship of Jesus, while the Greeks, Gentiles, who the Jews would have seen as the pagan savages, sought wisdom and reason for Jesus. Now, here is the here in the West, we want wisdom and logic and reason and laws. And it's the rest of the world, I don't want to call them savages, that's different time, different place. The rest of the unbelieving, pagan, worshipping people out there, they're the ones who need the miracles. We just want good teaching. We just want good books. We just want logical arguments. Save the miracles. For the rest of the world. God doing something miraculous is seen as second rate to a good teaching. 
Just let that sink in for a second. We may not say that they are second-class people, but we act like we are the refined group who just need good teachings while the rest of the world need God to do something miraculous in order to get their attention. And that is treated like a secondary way for God to prove himself. And that just, that just kind of baffles me a little bit. It really does. Maybe that's why we don't see as many miracles in our country, in the West, and we hear more and more reports from missionaries of miraculous things taking place on the mission field. Not so much because, you know, the rest of the world, they're the ones who need the miracles, but maybe, just maybe, it's because we're too good for them. Maybe we're a little too prideful in ourselves that, you know, a good word is good enough for me. I don't need a miracle. Think about how we treat miracles. When do we, here in the West, want start praying for miracles? Miracles are a desperation Hail Mary move that we do in prayer when grandma is dying of cancer. That's when, that's when miracles become convenient for us here in the West. Any other time, don't need it. Too good for that. The rest of the world, they're the ones who need it, not us. We're treating God suspending the laws of nature to do something beyond them as like we're too good for that. And it's just, it's really, it's almost sad. It's almost sad to me, folks. I'm sorry. Anyway, I got to get back on track. I could keep going on this. If it's not the aesthetic issue people have with miracles, it's the fact that people confuse the laws of nature with the law of thought and think if a miracle occurs like raising of the dead, all thought is broken as well. So now 2 plus 2 equals 5. Which I think goes back to my rant... <laughs> Sorry, that we act like we are too good for miracles here in the West. But, you know, whatever. Who am I? I'm just a dude from the Midwest recording a podcast in his office. Lewis addresses this first object of an aesthetic issue by walking through a series of examples showing that when Jesus performed miracles in Scripture, he was merely doing in an instant what he had observed his father do in a larger sense. The father creates water into wine every day through a process, through a time, through a series of scientific principles and stuff that I don't quite understand. Water is eventually turned into wine. Jesus did, Jesus did it in an instant. Also, through God's laws, he has put into place that bread and fish, bread can be made, or excuse me, wheat can be made into bread, and there is an abundance of fish to feed us. And Jesus multiplied bread and fish to feed the 5,000 in an instant. 
<clears throat> Again, through the system in nature that the Father set up, doctors preserve life and heal people all the time. Jesus did the same time and time again. Lewis even argues that Jesus cursing the fig tree and it dying overnight demonstrates God's sustaining power being removed from life. <clears throat> there is one miracle that Lewis believes is the most significant of them all. Quote, I can understand the man who denies the miraculous altogether. But what is one to make of the people who admit the miraculous but deny the virgin birth? No miracle is in fact more significant. In that process, God has created the only true man by skipping over the normal, natural way conception is done. <clears throat> Before moving into the second class of miracles, Lewis clarifies that he is not trying to trivialize miracles, but rather argue against those who want to say that miracles are beneath God and meaningless interruptions of the created order. And I say amen to that. He says that the stuff he reads in fantasy stories or grim fairy tales where trees talk and other seemingly miraculous things happen are Arbitrary miracles. Any anapromorphic creature or thing that springs to life or boat that turns into a whatever, those are arbitrary miracles. Which makes me wonder, I, I put the book down and thought for a second, it makes me wonder that when you go to, like, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe specifically, you know, in that story there's all types of, you know, creatures who can talk and Santa Claus shows up and Santa's got like, you know, magic and stuff. And well, excuse me, Father Christmas shows up because Father Christmas is cooler than Santa Claus. Um, and, you know, the trees can listen and like report back to the White Witch. So there's a lot, there's a lot that goes on here in that story. But it makes me wonder if Lewis would say the only truly miraculous thing that happens in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is Aslan coming back to life. Not even Aslan, you know, going to the White Witch's castle and turning everybody back from stone, but Aslan coming back to life. I wonder if that's the only truly miraculous thing that happens in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And if that's the case, that puts an even more, that puts an even greater significance on that event. But that's all speculation and my own thinking. Anyway, the second class of miracles in Lewis's view are things that God does in an instant that foreshadow what he will do universally. The resurrection of Jesus Christ points to the resurrection of our bodies and the, and the restoration of all creation. The transfiguration and the walking on water demonstrate the effortlessness power we will have over nature at some point, which is something that I have never considered before in my entire life, and I think I sat the book down and paced around the house for a little bit. <laughs> but then, and then, I read a bit about Humpty Dumpty that absolutely blew my mind. 
And I just want to say, this summary that I'm about ready to give is not going to give this, is not going to give it justice. I wish I could do it justice, but we're already starting to go long on time here. So, in the nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, right? Starts on a wall. Then, as you know, Humpty Dumpty, he had a great fall. And it is presumed that when Humpty Dumpty hit the ground, he must have broke apart a bit because all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Right? I think. I think that's the story. That's how it goes. Lewis uses this analogy to explain, essentially, the correlation between science and nature and why miracles are difficult to accept. Science can prove that things are winding down, that Humpty Dumpty is in the middle of his great fall. And science can show that all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put it back together again. Which implies that at one point, everything was content sitting on the wall. Science can't, as great as science is, don't listen to this and think that I'm some anti-science Christian. I, I'm, no, science is great. Science helps us understand God's created order. I, it's good. And science is beneficial, and it helps us in different ways. But science can't wind everything back up. Yeah, we've been able to create things like anti-aging cream for wrinkles or, you know, just for men that can, like, dye your beard back to being really dark and get rid of all the gray. But you're not actually undoing the aging process. You're not actually undoing your age at all. You're just kind of hiding it. You're concealing it. Science can show us that things are winding down. Science can show us that, you know, they can't really put it back together again. But it also means that at one point, everything was on the wall, content. Everything was sitting on the wall, perfectly content and not busted yet and not winding down. And that's the miracle of restoration, of glorification, of resurrection. That Jesus will, through the new creation, through the new birth, he will wind everything back up, our bodies, all of creation, and put us back on the wall, put us back in contentment where we should be at. That's where we were intended to be. Lewis then moves us to the resurrected body of Jesus. His body was much like ours, but still different in some aspects. Uh, There is a physical element to it. He walked, he ate food, but there was also some form of a supernatural element to it, of him being able to randomly, you know, vanish and appear. Uh, Yeah, he told him not really to hold on uh, on to him at different points. Lewis then argues that the idea that the future glorification of all things will be all spiritual is not biblical. That 
there will be a physical element to this new creation. Amen. I agree with that. I think there are times where evangelicals, I shouldn't say times, there has been a lot of times in recent church history where evangelicals have over-glorified, idolized the spiritual aspects of Christianity and completely neglected the physical elements, the very biblical teachings on the physical. And so I agree with Lewis here. We are, we're not just spiritual beings and we won't just be spiritual beings. We'll be physical and spiritual beings. And it's hard to understand and I don't get it either, but there is tensions that run all throughout scripture and I'm willing to accept this one. Finally, Lewis begins wrapping up the, up this section, addressing those who find miracles to be intellectually baffling, the two plus two equals five type of people. Because to them, there is an order to nature, and with miracles being a disruption uh, to that, then they must be frowned upon. Why would nature, why would miracles occur when the nature of law, the laws of nature are perfectly fine the way they are? Now, this final paragraph is quite long, and I'm already pretty close to going over on time. So I'm going to summarize with the with one important line from it. <clears throat> if miracles are something that we just need to accept, like they, they happen, we have to accept that. And we have to accept that we don't understand how they occur other than it's a suspension of the laws. Then the whole universe is a miracle. The whole thing. And when we see miracles performed by Jesus, we are getting a taste of what reality should be like. But what do you think? What do you think? Do you like Lewis's definition of miracles? Do you think he and also I and my rant are, are correct in that miracles, we have this mentality that miracles are for other people and that here in the West, we are too good for them. Let me know what you think. If you enjoyed this episode, let me know what you think. You By commenting on the link on wherever you found this episode of the podcast, you can follow me on Twitter at my underscore seminary life, or you can follow me on TikTok at just.brandon.k. Or you can always leave us a voice message on our on our profile on Anchor. I would love to hear those and maybe put some of them on the show as well. And as always, please subscribe, favorite, leave a review, write a review, star review, whatever it is on whatever platform that you are streaming this from right now. And tell a friend that you know that you think will enjoy this episode. Well, friends, we, we made it through the a very hefty episode. Hopefully that motivates you to go out and check out the rest of this book for yourself. Come on back next week where we are going to discuss Edmund. That's right. We're going to talk about one of the main characters from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The Well, actually, not even just that. And he's in most of the Chronicles of Narnia books, but we're going to be looking at him in, through the lens of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe 
and also Prince Caspian, because I think there is something that we often miss when it comes to Edmund. But until next time, I will catch you all later.